Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamel Caruso, Chief Revenue Officer for HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, I'm joined by our founder, Dr. Somi Javed, and Libby, a patient of ours at HerMD. Libby came to us with several sexual health issues, including endometriosis, vaginismus, vulvodynia, and decreased libido. And while she was able to find treatment for her endometriosis fairly early on, she lived with sexual pain for years before she was even able to receive a diagnosis. In this episode, Libby shares her story of struggling with sexual dysfunction, the impact it had on her life and her relationships, and finding hope again. Well, thank you, Libby, so much for joining us today. It's really great to meet you and have you on. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here. I would love to dive right in because we have a lot to cover today. And I first just want to say thank you for being so brave and sharing your story because I know a lot of women will be listening and will find just all of this information helpful and to hear another woman who's gone through some of the same struggles they have. So let's dive right in. Let's talk about your healthcare struggles. Can you walk us through it? So when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was diagnosed with endometriosis, and I had been having a lot of pain with my monthly cycle, and I had also had a lot of polyps that my gynecologist had noticed and had to remove. So I had surgery for endometriosis when I think I was about 20. It was a few years after that that I started having just a lot of pain in my vulvar area with intercourse, with using tampons, with any type of contact in that area with labia or vulva. And so at that point, I started seeking out medical care because I didn't know what was causing the pain. I didn't know what was causing that irritation. And I would chat with friends about it and Nobody could relate to the type of pain I was experiencing. And so I began to seek out help from medical providers. And honestly, that's kind of when I started into a lengthy many years period of just not having any answers, of feeling pretty isolated and hopeless. No one shared with me the word vulvodynia. No one was able to give me a treatment plan where I saw any type of relief or progress. So at that point, I was pretty confused and isolated and did not really know what to do. Wow. This is like, a. I want to say it's almost like a decade long experience from like your diagnosis of endometriosis through vulvodynia. So let's just dissect endometriosis for a moment. It does affect 6.5 million women in the US. For someone like you or me, if we're looking it up, this is what we'll get. A painful disorder in which tissues similar to the tissue that normally lines the inside of your uterus grows outside your uterus. (laughs) Really helpful to really address like what is actually going on and how it impacts the patient. So when I am teaching anatomy, I'll tell people, think about your uterus like an orange, and the peel is the outside called the serosa, 
and the fruit is the muscular layer or the myometrium. And that potential space, you know, in the middle of the fruit that's empty, right, that's just air, that's your endometrium. And that's the inside lining of the uterus. That's where babies grow or polyps grow. That's the inside lining of the uterus. And so what can happen is I tell people, imagine the human being or a woman is the uterus and the arms sticking out are the fallopian tube. So the inside lining, instead of just going forward out the uterus through the cervical opening onto our pad or tampon through the vagina, right? So just downward, you get a retrograde or backwards flow, okay? So the blood goes backwards out the fallopian tube and kind of spills into the belly. And so that blood carries with it tissue. And for some women, like Libby, we don't understand why, instead of our body just destroying it and getting rid of it, like other unwanted things, our body has these warriors, they come in, they're macrophages, and they kind of get rid of it. For some women, it, it starts to grow. And so it can grow on the ovaries or the fallopian tubes, or the bowel, or the bladder. And you can imagine this tissue every month then gets signals from the brain and thinks it's getting ready to cycle again. So it's a continually chronic, painful condition that worsens with stimulation. So either intercourse or with menstruation. And um, that's how we think it happens. And OBGYNs know that most women do have this backwards flow because I'll tell you when I was operating on women um, doing laparoscopy, which is, you know, where you put a camera in the pelvis uh, in the belly, you would see when women were on their period, you would see like little blood droplets from the fallopian tube, you know, spilling into the belly. And for most women, it's not an issue except for if it takes root. And so that's that's the true explanation of, of what endometriosis is and why it happens. The other very painful, sad statistic is that endometriosis is often, there's huge delays in diagnosis for women. Oftentimes, young women like you are blown off. Endometriosis, unfortunately, cannot be seen on any imaging study, not a sonogram, not an MRI, and you actually need to do surgery. And I had a patient the other day come to me, and she had been in pain for years and years and years, and her doctors were like, well, we're not going to do anything because we have to do surgery to diagnose it. So she lived that way for a decade. And I could not believe that that was their answer because yes, it's surgery. Yes, it's general anesthesia. Yes, it should not be taken lightly. But you're prohibiting that woman from number one, getting an answer. And number two, withholding potential treatment. So when someone presents that long, you know, you should proceed with the appropriate care plan. And so I'm happy. It doesn't sound like that part of your healthcare journey was delayed, but many women suffer through years and years of delay in diagnosis. So how significant was the pain for you, Libby? Like, how did that affect your day-to-day life before having your diagnosis and surgery? With endometriosis, the pain was pretty significant. I had a lot of pain every month with my cycle. And that was the majority of the time that I felt pain with the endometriosis. Again, like Dr. Javed said, luckily at that time, I had a pretty quick diagnosis and they did laparoscopic surgery and found, don't they discuss endometriosis in stages? Is that still a, is that still a thing? Yes, they absolutely do. Stage one through four. But for those listening and you know, that doesn't indicate cancer, precancer. It's a different type of staging. Yes. I remember I 
had stage four. Um, so it was pretty extensive. It was on my bowel and my bladder and the relief that I felt after that surgical procedure was night and day for me. I have not had that type of pain that I experienced with the endometriosis since my procedure. So with the surgery and what Libby is referring to is with endometriosis, we can see what they describe as gunpowder lesions. So you'll see that those little pieces of tissue and they look like gunpowder because they've got iron in them from blood. Or you'll see like cobwebbing. Um, that's the way scar tissue looks in the belly. And so not only is surgery diagnostic, like you can definitively tell someone that's what they have, but like in Libby's case, it can also, I don't like the word curative because I don't want to ever promise it will never happen again, but it's also treatment. And I see patients go years and years and years without any recurrence or any symptoms. So they're back to having sex. They're back to not having to take time off of work or school um, during their menstruation. And stage one through four um, just tells you how many lesions or how much you see. So stage four is very, very significant. And the problem with delays is you may have someone who's coming to you at stage one or stage two, and then she ends up, you waste time as a provider and she might present stage three, stage four. Libby, technically you say it can't get worse, but it could have. She could have been in immense amounts of pain and needed emergent surgical intervention. So um, that's the danger in waiting too long as the disease progresses. Going back to the delay in diagnosis due to like what we say is a normalization of symptoms. So Libby, you had said it was really painful and that brought you in. But for, I think for a lot of women, they just think, oh, my period is supposed to hurt. I'm supposed to feel pain. Maybe this is what it's like. Why is this the case, Dr. Baden? Like you mentioned like long-term consequences. What are some of those longer-term consequences? I think there's a lot of stigma talking about endometriosis because the symptoms are twofold. Some women are not even comfortable talking about their period or like you said, it's normalization. Like all the women in my you know, family have painful periods, Dr. Javed. I didn't think twice. I thought a woman had to live this way. But the other major bucket of symptoms are sexual, right? So it's dyspareunia is sexual pain. And you know from talking to me about this, it can be in the vulva, it can be in the vagina. But with endometriosis, it's deep. It's in the pelvis. It's abdominal. And a lot of women don't want to bring this up with their providers. They don't even know how to bring it up. They feel embarrassed. Uh, they don't understand. So there's a lot of stigma surrounding it. You know, you and I have talked about the healthcare system being broken and the average uh, appointment time is 15 minutes. How can you even begin to uncover this? So the insurance system, lack of research. Up until this past year, there had only been one medication on the market for endometriosis. And that was, I think, developed in the 1960s or 70s. And it, and it came with pretty significant um, side effects. So here you are, okay, you finally make the diagnosis. And other than surgery, you have one medicine for this, you know, painful, debilitating condition. Long-term effects are obviously um, people lose their relationships over not being able to have intercourse. They lose time at work. They lose time at school. And then when you get into this pelvic scarring, you need room in the body to be able for egg and sperm to meet in the fallopian tube and to implant. And so it can lead to infertility. Wow, that's incredible. Libby, having caught that early and having surgery, you said thereafter you had pain, like extreme vulvar pain. And you mentioned like it hurt with intercourse, tampons. 
and you talked with your friends and no one really had experienced that kind of pain. What was it like when you did get the diagnosis of vulvodynia? Talk us through what it was like to finally get that. Yeah, that was, you know, so I, I walked through the diagnosis and treatment for my endometriosis and then later started having this pain that I know I mentioned this, but it felt so isolating. I was readily talking about it with close friends, with family. I sought out many medical providers who, I mean, I I literally experienced the trope of the older male doctor telling me to drink wine before intercourse and thinking like, I feel so hopeless because that cannot be the answer. You know, it may, it makes you wonder, is this in my head? Is this what is happening? What is, what is causing this? And so when I finally met with Dr. Javade and started to get answers and treatment that worked, it was just, it was life-changing. It was life-changing for me. It was life-changing for my marriage. It was, I was so filled with hope that for, you know, eight years previous, I had felt so hopeless. See, this is why Komel can't be the doctor because she's already tearing up and she'll do this and she'll call me afterwards. And I'm like, dude, that is my day times, you know, anywhere from 12 to 20 patients. And I love you all. And I get goosebumps, you know, when I get to hear what a difference we've made and how long you struggled before you came you know, to see me. And that's very, very frustrating to me. And that's why I spend some of my time on advocacy and education because it drives me insane. And we just did a map of, you know, how many people have come from out of state. And it's it's pretty insane how many people are coming and, and seeking us out. And I'm glad that you were able, you know, to find us. And so vulvodynia is not as rare as we think. You know, it affects anywhere from 200,000 to 6 million women. I mean, that's not rare by any means. And you should have been told that, you know, terminology, the fact that people are still telling my patients, I hear this on a weekly basis, both of you drink more wine, drink more vodka. You know what your problem is? You just need to relax. And I cannot believe that providers in this day and age are number one, still saying that. And number two, that they get away with it. Um, And so this is the other barrier to healthcare that I always refer to is that provider bias. And I would love to say it's just the crotchety old man, but Libya, it's not. It's unfortunately, it's female providers too. And you just get it in your head that women are, you know, that it's all in your head or that, you know, they're fanatical or they're crazy. And it's, it's not true. If you just listen to your patients, they, they know their bodies and they know that something is wrong. And the provider bias has got to stop because we know in cardiovascular disease, women die. I mean, we all, Kamal, you and I almost lost our mother because of that provider bias that inherently happens to women and how they're just dismissed and they become invisible. But kudos to you for not becoming an invisible patient. And despite hearing awful things, continuing to research and continuing to advocate for yourself, right? Saying, that can't be the answer. There's got to be something better because, you know, you were right. There was a diagnosis and there was a treatment plan for you. I can't imagine like hearing that from your physician. It makes me like 
so incredibly angry. So the other thing that I want to say to those providers and to these patients who've ever been told that is, you know, we put people under anesthesia who have vaginismus and vulvodynia to either do Botox or to even get a pap smear done. And we have a different anesthesia protocol for these patients because even when they are under conscious sedation, their body is still responding to pain. So if we have someone with conscious sedation, anesthesia, and they're still reacting, either their pelvis is contracting or they're, they're still closing their legs until we get them comfortable, how in the world is alcohol going to do anything? Alcohol does not help you with pain. It's not a treatment option. You're basically telling women, just be unconscious for your sexual experience. Forget about your pleasure. I mean, just lay there, be a vessel for your partner. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, half conscious or not. It's just, it's ridiculousness. And I remember when the CRNA started doing these cases with me, she was like, Somi, this is incredulous. And that's why we're going to write a paper this year about the cocktail that we use that is works so well and making sure these patients are comfortable. But she's like, any doctor or provider that has ever said anything like that to these women is a complete, complete idiot. And they need to come in and watch and see what happens even under anesthesia. What does actually happen even under anesthesia with the body for women who have vulvodynia? So with vulvodynia, so vulvodynia is the pain in the vulva, right? And we describe the vulva as what a lot of women will misidentify as their vagina, right? So the outer, both lips, menorah and majora, the mons pubis, the introitus, which is the opening. So you will actually see the muscles around the vaginal opening contract. Um, With vaginismus, which is the involuntary contraction of the muscles around the vaginal opening, you'll actually see sometimes their bottom lifts up off the table. Sometimes they'll, their knees will um, try to lock together. So, and this is just when we're putting them under and we're just getting them draped and just light touch to the outside. And that tells you how primed the body is. I tell people it's your body's protective mechanism. If something hurts, If you are about to get punched in the gut, what do you do? Your muscles automatically contract. You don't think about it. When you touch something hot, you don't say, wow, that's hot. Let me pull my hand away. It's autonomic. So that's what happens to the body. The vagina and vulva says, "Uh uh-uh, that hurts. And so our brain protects us. And so everything starts to fire. So you visibly see a reaction with patients who have these pain conditions, even when they're asleep. So Libby, you mentioned after getting treatment, it was life-changing for yourself and for your marriage. Can you talk a little bit about how vulvodynia affected your relationship? You know, I've said that it was isolating for me. It was isolating for us as a couple as well, because there just aren't a lot of people who are either willing to talk about those things or who can relate to those barriers and challenges that we were then experiencing sexually. And it is such a, it's such a complicated thing then for me mentally to have sexual desire and to want sexual intimacy and then experience those, you know, just what Dr. Javade was talking about, those involuntary muscular reactions that shut down you know, advancement of and intimacy, sexual intimacy. So my husband and I had actually started seeing a therapist together to kind of work through 
what we were experiencing. And she's actually the one who told me about Dr. Javade. So that is how I ended up understanding what was happening with my body and realizing that there were names for these things. And then, you know, eventually getting to a place where treatment was working. So, you know, I think it was, it was a really long, complicated journey for us. And we were so immensely helped by, for us, therapy, talking to someone, trying to figure out what would work, and then finally finding someone who could really help me make progress. And then we were able to move forward as a couple from there. It's why I rely on the therapists and counselors so much, because as Libby said, she was isolated, they were alone. Um, A lot of younger couples think that sexual um, dysfunction is a problem of older patients, so they, they can't find people in their own peer group who can relate you know, in fact, they're joking about sex or, you know, and that makes the couple who's not having sex very uncomfortable in those social social situations. I'll have young couples who will avoid going out with their friends because they feel so different than their peer group. And so I always say I can Botox the vagina, I can laser, I can treat with hormones, but I am much more successful when I rely on that multidisciplinary approach and my colleagues, you know, the sexual health therapist, the pelvic floor physical therapist, because if you don't address what has happened emotionally and psychologically because of all of the, I mean, frank trauma, honey, what you guys went through for so long to live with pain and not understand why or to even be given an option, you know, it's trauma. And you have to figure that out, dissect it, be able to talk about it as a couple. And you can't sweep all that under the rug. And I, and I say there's no one fix I can give people if they're not willing to do the homework. And, and Libby and her spouse were willing to do the homework and that's why they were so successful. Um, it was that combination, you know, approach. And it's it, it's a team effort. And the patient's included in that team, obviously. Um, and that's what makes people successful. So you also came to us with vaginismus, which is different than vulvodynia, and low libido. So I'm just going to quickly define them in my non-medical, well, medical terminology, but not with my non-medical background, at least. And then we can go into it. So vaginismus is like when the muscles of a woman's vagina squeeze or spasm when something's entering. So tampon, penis, even a Q-tip, it says that it's so painful and the muscles lock up and it's so incredibly strong that nothing can really penetrate. And five to 17% of women. So that's a significant portion. Again, we're talking millions of women. And yet a lot of healthcare practitioners are not trained to treat it. And then low libido is a third of women experience some kind of loss of sexual desire. So I'm not talking like HSDD, which is one in 10, but just nearly a third of women experience some kind of loss of sexual desire of their lifetime. So Libby, walk us through that. And then Dr. Javed, I'd love to hear from you also. I'm like, why are these things not touched upon in medical school? You know, when I was first experiencing that pain, the vulvodynia, and did not have a name for it, didn't have answers, didn't have solutions. You know, over time, the longer that just went on, my muscles did start reacting. And I did start having that 
you know, involuntary contraction in the vaginismus kicked in. And then, you know, more years passed and my sexual desire was just dropping every year because it is that conflict of, you know, my sexual identity and my wants and needs and pain. And so my sexual desire was just dropping through the roof. And so being able to first work through treatments for the pain and helping my muscles and the Botox procedure and the lasers and things that we were finding worked for me, you know, then we were also able to start looking at why is my desire low and how can we help in that area? And that's been one of the most liberating pieces for me, you know, on top of a massive reduction in pain and feeling more in control of my body. One of the most liberating pieces has been to experience what I feel like is a normal level of sexual desire for me. Getting back to a baseline of what I remember and what I want and who I want to be as a sexual being. So I think that's been one of the coolest pieces for me is to feel like I have that part of myself back. I swear you're not going to make me cry today. Uh, (laughs) So vulvodynia, let me just touch upon that really quickly. Usual causes can be either um, hormones, lack thereof, uh, skin conditions. It can be caused by a problem with the nerves, with problems with anatomy. And then Libby said then she developed that vaginismus, which is that abnormal contraction of the muscles surrounding the vagina. And so a lot of women will have some trigger. It's either a physical trigger, like it was for Libby, an emotional trigger. I have a lot of patients who had an assault or an attempted assault, even emotional abuse or feeling like you've been threatened in a relationship, even being raised in a really religious household where messaging was you know, sex is bad, you know, sex is only for marriage. And then all of a sudden you get married and you're supposed to be able to tell your body, okay, now it's okay. Even accidents like pelvic floor accidents from diving accidents or equestrians, anything that has caused pain. You know, we talked about the brain wanting to protect us. I've had women who had a bad obstetric injury and they were fine before they had babies. And then all of a sudden they've developed vaginismus. Vaginismus definitely comes in different um, degrees. I have women who've never been able to consummate their marriage. They've never been able to tolerate an exam. They've never been able to um, insert a tampon. That's how a lot of young girls first find the problem. So why the issues? Sometimes it's a hymenal problem. It's not vaginismus at all. Sometimes it's a septum. But I will tell you, I'm a board-certified OBGYN and went to a very reputable program I did not learn about vaginismus in residency. I'm a, I'm a gynecologist. I learned about it later in preceptorships and, and my own training. There are no FDA cleared or approved treatment modalities, so that's the other thing. And there's not a lot of clinical research. I mean, one of the papers that we'll be writing later this year will probably be the second or third paper in the United States uh, talking about Botox and how we use it for vaginismus. So I think that is the problem is even if a patient comes forth, a doctor may be able to diagnose it, but then doesn't necessarily have the knowledge, understanding, or even tools. Like we're set up at HerMD with an in-office surgical suite where we can put patients to sleep. You, you can't inject patients awake. You, you just can't do it. And a hospital setting I find would be too traumatic. 
you already have someone who's gone through all this and then you're going to have them in a huge OR with multiple people, we have a very controlled setting. So I think those are, you know, the limitations with vaginismus um, as to why providers are not picking it up more readily. I'm not excusing it by any means. There should not be a delay in diagnosis. And then Libby talked about libido. So as sexual health providers, we talk about all the domains of sexuality and Libby struggled with a lot of them. She had pain. She had desire issues. She had, yeah, so she had pain and desire. So there are multiple domains of sexuality. We talk about libido, we talk about orgasm, we talk about pain, we talk about arousal. And sometimes women have problems in one of the categories of the domains and sometimes all, because as we see with Libby, pain then caused problems with her desire. And so you had to treat the pain, but then also had to address the desire you know, we want to eat sugar because we get this euphoria, right? It feels good. We want to have more sex when we have orgasms because it feels good. Generally, human beings do not want to do something that does not feel good and in fact hurts, right? So it's very normal for libido to be downregulated. And the blessing is now that we do have FDA-approved treatment options for, you know, HSDD, which is a very specific kind of low libido. Um, But up until 2015, zero FDA-approved treatment options. But there are off-label options as well. How common is it for women to come in, like Libby did as well, with multiple sexual health issues? It is so common. I'd love to give you a national statistic, but I don't even think that you know data is out there. We know over 70 million women struggle with some type of sexual dysfunction. I don't even, you know, we in the office use that tool that you know about, the Female Sexual Function Index, to help people process and understand sexuality and all the domains of sexuality. And it's so eye-opening when they're like, oh my God, Dr. Javade, and they even see, they're like, look, my score is lowest with my desire, but I'm okay with pain and lubrication. Like, those domains are okay. The other reason the domains are so important is it's a tool for the FDA to approve medications and also for providers to measure response. Because think about it, when someone has blood pressure issue, you measure blood pressure before, you start them on a medicine, you measure it after. How do you measure sexuality? Like, yes, you talk to patients, but how do you objectively measure? And so it does give sexual health providers and patients a tool to measure their progress and even to understand. I sometimes get tears saying, oh my God, this makes sense. Like this is exactly how I'm feeling. And this test tells me that, you know, it it agrees with what I'm saying. I'm not crazy. I'm like, you're not crazy. So all the time, but you guys both know also my practice is very skewed towards sexual health. Probably 80% of my patient population comes to me for sexual dysfunction. So Libby, share with us like what your life is like now. Gosh, when I'm considering that question, I feel like the first thing that comes to mind for me is hope. My life is so much more hopeful. I also feel like I have learned through working with Dr. Javade and her team how to advocate for myself. I didn't understand when I was when I was getting, you know, responses that were just demeaning and degrading and completely unhelpful, it it felt so hard to advocate for myself. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know that there 
actually were answers out there. I think that the education and the resources that I've been provided with over the past couple of years from Dr. Javed and her team have taught me how to talk about my sexual health and have taught me how to walk in and meet with Donna and say, here are my three issues. Let's figure it out. You know, when I don't think I could have done that five years ago. So hopeful, I feel like I can advocate for myself and talk really intelligently about my issues in a way that lead me to helpful results. And it, it, I really feel more like myself. I, you know, I mentioned that it was liberating to feel like I have pieces of my sexual desire back, but it, it being able to find some treatments that have worked, it's really just helped me feel more in control of my sexuality. I love that for you. And I love the fact that you talked about how you don't always see me because I know a lot of people listening are like, I'm going to wait three months to see Dr. Javade. And I always, you know, talk about how everything that we believe in and her MD is to fix two problems. It's to empower and educate and advocate our patients so that no matter what provider you see with us or what location you're at, you're going to get the same care because it's standards of care that we have set up. So I love that. And I love the fact that you've learned how to walk into a provider's office, advocate for yourself, address your issues. Uh, that's what I tell people. I tell patients, be prepared. You know, you, yes, we have more time at our location, but still it's not unlimited. You know, know what you want to talk about, know what you want to address, be clear with the provider. And I tell them, you know, if you're not getting the answers that you want or need, then you need to move on to another provider. You need to go somewhere where they will listen to you, that they will advocate for you. And even if they don't know the answer, because I'll be honest, there are days where, you know, people have traveled far away and they have come to me with something so complex. And I said, I don't know right now, but I will do the research. I will look at the data and I will find something for you. And people have enough faith that they trust you because you're being completely honest and, that's the other thing I think providers are too scared to do because I think they think they have to know everything. And and you don't. Your patients just expect honesty and for you to be their biggest champion. Libby, what advice would you give to younger women out there who may be feeling the same way you are um, in their interactions, you know, with their healthcare provider or just even with themselves or their partner? You are not alone. It feels so lonely. And you have probably been made to feel a little crazy. You're not alone. And it is a real intense challenge. The the thing that I don't know if I would have believed it at the time, but the thing that I would want to tell my younger self is that there is hope. There are things that will help. There are people who understand and can educate you about what's happening. And there are ways to move forward that are going to increase the quality of your life. Girl, you are pulling on my heartstrings today. I'm like, I'm looking at my sister going, okay, (laughs) I am not going to cry. I think you don't even realize the impact you've made today because someone who has symptoms like you or even one of your symptoms is listening and is going to say, okay, I need to call my doctor. 
I need to figure out what's going on. I don't have to live this way. And so I love the fact that you tell people they're not alone because they feel alone like you did, isolated, broken, you know, hopeless, and that you've said that there's hope because that's that's what patients want. They want hope and they want to be listened to and they don't want to feel like they're alone. So even, you know, you sharing this is going to be huge. We always get feedback and we get appointments and they're like, oh my God, I heard the podcast and I heard this patient and that's what I had been struggling with and I had no idea. So you've done an immense favor. You've kind of paid it back, friend. I am more than happy to. I think I would have loved to have listened to someone who had experienced what I was going through. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk about it. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female-forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMDHealth and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you'd like to share your sexual health story, you can reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.